Hi, everybody. I'm so glad you're here for this episode of Grief is My Side Hustle. Today, I'm going to introduce you to David Pope, who's a clinician in the UK. He lost his dad and his mom very close to each other when he was 25 years old. And he talks to us about sort of the legacy of carrying loss over time, transforming pain into a calling. But also, he really just dives in deep with concepts around loneliness and recovery. I'm really glad you're here. I think you're going to love this one. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I'm your host, Megan Bearden Jarvis, and I'm really excited to be here today with David Pope. David reached out to me after, I think, listening to Grief is My Side Hustle, and he's going to share his story of grief and loss with us today. David, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So we had a little quick conversation a second ago. Just tell people where you are physically in the world, and then you can jump right into telling us about where you come to the world with grief and loss. Mm. So I'm based in Ashford in Kent, in sunny Kent, and uh, that's southeast England. And uh, I have a partner and three uh, daughters. Ah. And uh, I'm a full-time private counselor. Mm. Fantastic. Mm. Well, thank you. So I know a little bit about your story, but tell tell the listeners how you come into the world of grief and loss. Mm. So at the age of 25, I lost both my parents to cancer, which happened within a year of each other. So it was all very sudden and very quick and very traumatic, very shocking and very surreal. And I think what's really uh important when talking about grief is the nature of the relationship so in this case my relationship was very close very loving very caring Uh, i had a great relationship with my parents yes there were rows obviously there were quarrels in any relationship but it was a very close loving relationship so because of that my my grief was particularly deep and painful and traumatic and the speed at which both my parents passed in terms of the proximity between their deaths it was it was extraordinary I mean it was extraordinary to to have to cope with that yeah and I think what made it especially challenging for me is that I kind of grew up from quite a young age with mental illness struggles, so struggles with depression, struggles with anxiety. So I was thrust into this kind of nightmare, having already kind of suffered with, you know, with these mental illnesses. So it was a very, very challenging time. So both of your parents within a year is, I mean, I just like felt that in my heart that to me feels impossible, like too much. And yet that's a story that you know, people have that they are learning. And as they're learning, they begin to do it again. The natures of the cancer that your parents had, was it known that they were lethal, fatal cancers, or was there some back and forth and confusion about whether or not they could survive their illnesses? Uh Aha, this is a whole thing to unpack here. So, well, my, my dad passed from prostate cancer. Yeah. And my mom died of breast cancer. Now, what was extremely frustrating with my mom's situation 
is that the consultant that treated her would continuously give us hope. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, to this day, myself and my siblings, we don't know if that was to do with, you know, he was very eminent in his field. Ah, okay. Yeah. So we don't know if that was kind of ego-based. Mm-hmm. We don't know if he was genuinely just trying to keep us going with hope. But the fact is, she had a deeply aggressive tumour, right? We would hear sort of uh, rhetoric like, she's doing really well and she's rounding the corner, all that kind of thing. You know, she's responded really well to the radiotherapy and that didn't work. And then she got onto the chemo and, but so very, very confusing messages. Yeah. And because of that, it brought me to a conversation in the car with my dad. And this was probably about four weeks before she passed. And my dad said to me, uh, we were just talking and he just said to me, Dave, you know, mom's almost gone. Right. And I just went into like, what? What what are you talking about? Yeah. The the consultant has been so optimistic. Right. But being, you know, a, a typical dad, he kind of looked at me like, okay, well, I can understand why you're saying that and I can understand your sense of hope because you need that, right? But he didn't say anything else after that, but it was just a kind of, he got it. He got where I was coming from and all I had to do was just look into his eyes and I knew at that point, this is game over, you know? Yeah. I mean, that makes me think of a number of things. I heard you mention you have siblings and I, I want to know more about sort of the people around you during this loss and, and maybe how they helped you or hindered you. But I have five brothers and sisters wow. and with my father, my parents died two years with, within each other. My father was diagnosed with small cell cancer. There was like a a missive from the family about what it meant that never landed in my body is true. Mm-hmm. I've been connected to the medical community. I just sort of was like, Hey, here's this diagnosis. And people who know me well were like, Oh no, he's going to die. You know, there wasn't any, but I am telling you, David, more than once in the face of doctors, nurses, clinicians, they would say something and I would have to call my oncologist friend again and be like, so they said this. And he'd be like, nope, still dying. Because I think our minds have a capacity to hope. As a clinician, I think hope is so painful for people because it just pulls the chair out from underneath us. But even though I knew that there was sort of a distorted message and had been given, it sought out the true diagnosis. I still would get lost and confused. I still wanted, you know, when someone was saying, well, no, you know, this treatment hasn't really been a good match for him. And I'm like, so that's failing out of treatment, right? That means that kind of medicine is no longer an option. So now we're on experimental medicine, but the language was there in this very gentle way. And I think for others of my family, that was really important that they have softer, less jarring kind of walk into it. And did you know at the time that your mom was dying that your dad also had cancer? Did that diagnosis come to your family just after or had he been living 
with his diagnosis. So my dad actually got diagnosed about three or four years prior, but he was taking medication. And with prostate cancer, it's all about the numbers and the proteins and and the blood and all that kind of thing. So the drugs were keeping the numbers at bay. So they were keeping him alive. And subsequently, though, he he came off them. I think after, you know, my mum died, he kind of lost the will, you know, so he came off them. But so at, the, at that point, you know, he was still, he was keeping going. I think the, the drugs were, they did have side effects. I, I don't think he, you know, he didn't get on very well with the drugs at all. Yeah. But, um, but it, the, the, the manner in which sort of my, my dad passed was, again, very, a real sudden shock. My mum my mom passed February of 92, and then my dad passed in April of 93. And what happened was, just prior to his passing, he was away with relatives, and we got a call from one of our cousins, who was a nurse, saying, listen, your dad's coming home. He was away on a holiday. Your dad's coming home and he's got two weeks to live, right? And yeah, that, that was like a big shock. I mean, you know, you know the thing is with, with loss is no one, no one prepares you for that. No one teaches you how to prepare yeah. for that kind of a conversation. You don't learn that. So because there's no preparation... You just go into kind of la-la land, don't you? You go into this kind of other dimension of just insanity and surrealness. He he then flew back. And I think what had happened, you know, sort of on a physical level, is that he came off the drugs. The the numbers started getting worse. And, uh, you know, the, the tumour took over. And so he came back. He came to stay with my sister, and myself and my sisters, we were just kind of sitting there, just numb. I mean, you know, our dad was such a huge presence. Mm. He was so loved by everybody. He was such a big character. He'd done such amazing things in his life. And he was the sort of person that kind of tried to solve everyone's problems. Right? Mm-hmm. So he was like, you know, his whole sort of persona was like the saviour you know, the protector and physically very strong. So, yeah, funny enough, the most traumatic memories for me, a lot of them were just prior to their passing for both my mum and my dad. So that conversation in the car with my dad is definitely one of the most traumatic. Another one of the most painful memories was a couple of days before he passed, we were sitting watching a movie and he kind of did everything he wanted to do in the last couple of days. So he kind of watched his favorite film and ate his favorite food and all that kind of thing. And, you know, kind of every once in a while, he would kind of look at me as if I know, you know, that my days are numbered. Right. And I'll never forget that look. It was just the most surreal, extraordinary kind of connection. But, Deeply traumatic. It's so traumatic to go through something like that. 
Because it's true that I know from my own experiences, you know, my dad knew he was dying. My mom died suddenly. But what I, what I would say to my husband a lot is like, these are the realest moments of my life, which that's not exactly right. But so much of grief, like that thing that you described where your mind just goes nuts. There is a lot of neuroscience and I spend a lot of time trying to teach people about it more for the folks that are in it because it feels so disorienting and scary to have your mind not be able to code memory and, you know, to behave in these really odd ways, you know, thought you were going home, end up in the grocery store. So there, the body's like desire to protect you with these sort of shutdown mechanisms that it goes through means that the experience of loss is like, I don't know. I, I mean, I haven't done like hallucinogens, but I imagine it has a little bit of that in there where it's all this surrealness and it's hard to believe when you look around the way I was talking to a client about it the other day was like, you are at a, at a bus stop wondering if you're ever going to get on a bus and if that bus is going to take you somewhere good or scary. And everybody else looks like they are piloting their own vehicles somewhere. And you're just kind of like waiting in this surreal space. But I think the idea that as a species, we want to, you know, we want to survive it, but we, we, every one of us feels like we're inventing it individually for us. And part of that, I think, at least in, in this country is there's so little education and so little actual experience with death. You know, I have a pretty vast amongst my cohort of both clinicians and friends. I've seen a lot of death and it's not even that much. And I talked to Catherine Mannix on the podcast. She's the palliative care specialist. And she talks about how in history, people used to die in the home more. And so we used to have more just sort of core understanding. It was less surreal because we'd experience it in these titrated bits and pieces. Can I ask you about, you know, 25, man, I wouldn't go back to 25 for love or money. And my parents didn't die when I was 25. That is a young, hard age, no matter what. But I'm curious about, can you, can you talk to us a little bit about what it meant for you to kind of build a world forward without your parents already being someone who was susceptible to anxiety and depression how did you do that? Were there, what resources and tools helped you? What's really interesting is that when I look back on my life, I kind of think, how on earth did I get through those struggles without having tools? It's extraordinary because I probably spent most of my adult life developing and learning coping mechanisms cognitively, practically, spiritually, physically, you name it. Yet for the toughest periods of my life, there were no coping mechanisms. So I don't know how on earth. I mean, you know, obviously, as as soon as my parents passed, I went straight into therapy. So actually, that was a a massive coping mechanism. But in terms of everyday tools, there, there were none. There was, you know, but... Yeah, at the point of losing my folks, it was a question of, I mean, I, I didn't want to be around anymore, I'll be honest. I, I was just at a total make or break. It was just, you know, do I want to live or do I want to die? Yeah. And 
I decided, you know, I want to live and I got myself straight into therapy. I had therapy for two years with a bereavement counselor and she completely saved my life. And, you know, when, when I think about that, just the pure act of talking to a professional for an hour a week, how that saved me is just, it's extraordinary in itself because... Yes. When I think about the enormity of the situation and what happened, to then have that therapy be such a lifesaver, it, it's really interesting to contemplate that. But what, what is also you know, interesting to unpack there is that things that happen to you in life have a way of sort of transitioning. So everything that's happened to me in my life, all the struggles with mental illness and and my experience with loss has kind of propelled me to seek out all these different coping mechanisms. And that has created this absolute innate desire to go and help others. So it's weird how life goes. Yeah. It's totally amazing. And I think there are, well, I think two things. One is I think people do go through grief and loss and it's this big energetic experience that they have and that they carry for the rest of their lives. But the road that they were on stays the road that they were on. And then I think there are people who like you, it literally becomes this big position, you know, that they call traumatic growth, which is in your learning and to survive, essentially learning to survive with compound loss that, you know, could very much be, you know, trauma from a trauma therapist perspective really is like an event or a series of events that happen. And then when we're traumatized, it means we sort of get stuck there, that that event becomes the most important thing. And that, that, that event then defines how we move forward. And for a lot of folks without treatment or care, that can be a less than path, but traumatic growth is this opportunity to turn it into something for you and maybe, I mean, extraordinary if it's for the betterment of others. And it makes sense to me also because at 25, that's kind of when you're trying to figure out who you want to be when you grow up anyway, it's you're trying to find your footing in the world. And so here you are handed this thing that nobody, nobody can imagine doing. You almost don't think you can live through it. And then it's, it becomes the thing that is your calling. You mentioned that it was about two years in therapy. Did you know sort of in that space, like I'm going to, I'm going to take this on and this is going to be my life's work and I'm going to offer my experience back to the world. How did, how did you start to grow that part? Well, I should add that I've been in and out of therapy my whole life. So <laughs> yeah. I'm a right. bit of a- It wasn't a one bill. You had had the positive experience, hopefully positive experience with your anxiety and depression lifelong. Yeah. I've been a bit of a, a therapy junkie, I must say. Uh, and that, that's been for two reasons. Number one, to help me through all the struggles. But secondly, you know, it's it's been part of my journey as a counsellor. So it's, it goes hand in hand, you know, the supervision and, and the training and all the rest of it. So, and uh, well, I, I think we're talking about probably as I hit my early, early to mid thirties, I would say, I felt that 
you know, I'd probably spent a good decade immersing myself in, you know, as many books and lectures and webinars. And, and back then there wasn't so much, there wasn't so many podcasts, but, you know, yeah. as many, many talks and tapes as possible. And just literally it became an obsession of mine. Yeah. And I became very mindful that, you know, again, I, I, like yourself, I'm, I'm low to be, to using the word recovery, but mm. when one is talking about healing themselves, healing their trauma, you know, whether it's, you know, from childhood or whether it's mental illness or grief, I it became sort of mindful that it's got to be from a cognitive approach and it's got to be from a physical approach that I could teach myself lots of different mind and cognitive exercises, but you've also got to do a lot of body work. You've also got to do a lot of physical work because for instance, I, I had, you know, childhood traumas. I had traumatic experiences in my childhood. And the thing is, is that when, when that's experienced, you know, a child doesn't know how to express their emotions. They don't know how to communicate their emotions if they're if they're going through trauma so all that trauma just gets stuffed down into the body it gets repressed into the physical body so learning you know physical strategies to help with grief and to help with mental illness became imperative so to try and encompass that complete umbrella of you know cognitive and and practical I think you just said that so beautifully because in my office, what I am trying to help people understand is that, you know, most of what we're doing is really about energy, right? And then, and, and there's a great guy here named Mark Brackett at the Center for Emotional Healing in, at, in, at Yale. And he's written some books about, you know, what is a feeling? What is emotion? And I usually assign that because people don't even really you know, an emotion is this thing that comes and goes and a feeling is some, is the interpretation that we have of our emotional experience. And in grief, we are inundated with all kinds of emotional experiences that we wouldn't other otherwise have. And like you, I had childhood trauma. I had lost in my, my younger years under 10. And part of what's so challenging about that is you don't have the cognition to do the interpretations And so you're stuck with this sort of haunted house of feeling. And, you know, in trauma work, what we say is people survive unbelievable things. What they need is enough support so that they can take the meaning and make that meaning not be limiting, right? So one of the things that happened, there was a teenager in my life that died when I was eight. It makes perfect sense to me as a, you know, a mom of three kids now, my belief system became that my oldest brother was going to die because he was the oldest brother. I mean, I lived with that fear, even though I knew it was irrational. I I mean, you know what, if I'm all the way honest, it's still sometimes flashes where I just get this like, Oh my God, what if my brother dies? And, and the answer to that question is if my brother dies, my brother dies. He doesn't carry me places. He doesn't fund my life. But the fear, it was left inside my system unattended for so long that there are these scars with that. So I'm curious about that for you, because I think it's very normalizing, especially for clinicians. 
I mean, part of the reason I do this work in general is if there was ever a person who should have been inoculated against being traumatized and having to do inpatient work, it was me. I know all the books, all the trainings, all the body center trainings, all the things of all the things. And I could not stop PTSD from, you know, just sort of freezing itself inside my system. But I'm curious for you within the haunted house, are there things that you still battle against now that are connected to the grief and loss, sort of like that thought about my brother, or do you have some of that stuff that still runs for you now? Absolutely. You know, grief has no expiry. Yeah. It really doesn't. You know, I think about my parents all the time and we're talking almost 30 years ago now. Right. So, you know, for instance, my, my mom was really uh, into classical music. So she used to take me to a lot of classical music concerts. If I hear some Mahler or I hear some Bach or I hear some Beethoven, I start welling up. Right. So all that connection is synonymous, you know, with a relationship. Sometimes when I'm watching a movie that my dad would have watched, I, I imagine he's in the room. Yeah. And on one level, it's comforting. On the other level, it's really painful. So, and, you know, the thing is, is that people sometimes don't get that. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I, I see clients, it's really sad. I see clients and, you know, they've maybe lost someone close to them. Maybe it happened three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. And their partner or their family is saying, oh, you know, you should be moving on now. Yes, and it's yes. just, you know, it's, it's interesting how there's just such a lack of understanding. There's such a lack of understanding. And, you know, until you have fully processed. I know. There's no other way. You're just not going to get it. It can be really challenging for family members and for partners. And because, you know, it's not their loss. So even though, for instance, you know, they, they might be married or that might be their partner who's going through it. So obviously they're, it's their loss on some level. Yeah, they're adjacent to it. It's not the same. It's yeah. not the same. You're, you're offering <laughs> us, I think, the beautiful truth of it, it which is that it is, it is something that you carry forever and ever. You know, the, the analogy that I often use is that I wasn't a mother until I had my daughter. No one has ever asked me, when are you going to go back to being normal? When, you know, boy, you're still a mom, you know, I also have a back injury, a long standing back injury that people are more patient about <laughs> than sometimes the loss. And so I do think being able to just say out loud and, and within the culture of people who really do get it, that this is, it's a lifelong injury from now on. And it will flare up the way when it rains, some people's old knee injury flares up and it might flare up with Mahler might flare up. You know, I'm in New York right now and doing some stuff with a memoir that I'm writing. And, and what people keep saying to me is, isn't this so exciting? Aren't you so excited? And I am, this is amazing what I'm getting to do. And a thousand million zillion times a day. I cannot believe my parents are not alive for this. 
It's an and. I'm holding them in my left and right hands. I think there is this idea that if a feeling is big enough, you will only have that feeling. And with grief and loss, that's off the table. You know, maybe when people are falling in love and it's like this oxytocin drug related amazingness, but most of the things for the rest of our lives are an and situation. I feel this and I feel this. I like to say that to people because I'm not saying anything bad about the good when I just say out loud, this is something that's happening. And I, I have three kids, they're 13, 11, and nine. And though I try to sort of model the multiplicity of our emotional states by saying every day, you know, what were you surprised that was good today? What sort of sucked and you weren't expecting it? Because, you know, the school day is a long day and I don't want to cheerlead people forward. And it's not just about death. It's also in COVID, oh, well, you at least you get to do this. As soon as we're saying that, what we're doing is minimizing whatever loss we, you know, you didn't get to have your senior prom or you didn't get to graduate or, you, you know, it doesn't do anybody any good. That's never worked. You can't talk me out of my loss. You can minimize it and you can tell me to have it by myself. You can explain to me that you don't want to share it with me. I think that thing that you just said a moment ago about your dad sitting with you. I mean, one of the things I say every time during this is that, yes, this podcast is a wonderful clinical tool from a skilled therapist and I am a griever and this podcast is part of my grief work. And when you talk about, and many of my guests have talked about, they have a new active sort of present day relationship where they can call their parent in for advice or to sit with them, or I can't do that yet. And I don't know if I will. I mean, there is a part of me that wonders if I'm stopping it somehow because I find it sort of scary. But anytime someone says it, I'm like, oh, thank you for that little piece of hope because I would love to sit, you know, the longer time goes by, there are more things happening in the world. And I'm like, oh God, shit, my dad would have loved that. So sometimes I avoid it and sometimes I dive right into it. But the notion that I could do it with him in my mind is both terrifying. I don't do that yet, but it's also really hopeful. So I just loved that you gave that as an example. Will you tell me a little bit about what your constellation for you? And I think you have more than one sister. What, how did you guys navigate that forward? I have five brothers and sisters now, and we're just trying to figure out our footing about like who, who communicates information to each other. When I went to the UK, I mentioned to you that I went to the UK this summer. I was like, Oh, I I should tell one of my siblings where I'm going because my mother was like the grand central station of information. And so you just told her and then she made sure the rest of the family, everyone tagged into her pretty regularly, but without her, it's this new sort of deliberate task. So I'm just curious, you know, you were, you were young when all of this happened and you're 30 years into having your family. What's it been like? Mm. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, my dad was the glue of the family. And when he passed, the extended family kind of disintegrated. Yeah. Because he was like the big man who got everyone together kind of thing. So uh, as a result, uh, I got very, very close to my sisters. Mm. Now, we always had a great relationship. We were always close. But this really solidified the relationship 
where we just depended on each other mm. totally and utterly depended on each other we we needed each other to such a degree for survival because yeah. no one could understand our pain like we could right so yeah as a result that that was the one positive that that came out of it that yeah. it really cemented the relationship and i would say you know for many many years the passing of our parents formed a major part of our conversations yeah. the memories you know the different things i used to do the funny the quirky things i used to do but it, it took many many years to kind of make the conversation lighthearted the grief was intense it was yeah. really intense i mean i remember i was i was at my office and i got a phone call from my brother-in-law who said david you need to come to the house your dad's collapsed so i i assumed you know he'd collapsed right and so i rushed to the house and he said listen your dad's passed away i'm really really sorry so obviously he didn't tell me that over the phone because he, he wanted he didn't want me to have some sort of car accident or anything. And I walked in and I always remember my two sisters, they were sitting on the stairs. They were just, you know, bawling their eyes out. They were a total mess. But one of the first things my middle sister did, middle of the two, is she handed me my dad's watch. And she said, I, I guess you better wear this, right? I'll never forget that. I mean, that was just, what? what? Is this really happening? But yeah. I just, as I put it on, it, I just kind of felt, I don't know, I felt at one with my dad's identity, you mm. know, because that, I always, I always remember that watch. That watch was, was kind of my dad, right? That was the watch mm. he wore. So I remember that very well. And I drove around his car for quite a few months, you know? It's a, you kind of, I, I, I took on these kind of, you know, just to kind of, um, you embodied him. Established that connection, yeah. But it was a very, very, I, it was a very weird sort of reaction on my part because on the one hand, I was obviously devastated beyond belief. On the other hand, there was something about my parents being together, yeah. you know. In, so it, it was really, really weird because uh, there was this dichotomy of emotions on the one hand the devastation and on the other hand oh they're finally at peace together because my dad was so miserable after my mom passed yeah. and I, I wanted that pain to end so but then in the early years I used to think well that's quite selfish David what you know what why did you feel that way but then looking back on it now I understand I just didn't want my dad to suffer yeah. That makes so much sense to me. My parents were married 50 years when my dad died and my mom was working so hard. I mean, she was working so hard to try to get her feet underneath her to figure out how to live forward. But that's a lot to ask a 75 year old lady who's been married since she was 19. And it was painful to sort of look at and she was very private. She wasn't, she wasn't a big emoter. But I appreciate that. I understand that because I, I definitely don't hold a like, there's a cloud in the sky and they look down on us from heaven. But I do, I do believe in quantum physics that the energy goes out into the world and isn't destroyed. And 
I do believe because I've had some really meaningful, very powerful spiritual experiences where I just believe that that energy is around me. So I, you know what? I mean, I mean, my parents, I'm not sure they would have wanted to spend all eternity just together, but I, I do know it was really hard for them. At least, you know, the experience that I saw with my mom, it was really hard for her to be without him. So I, I get that. That makes sense to me. Yeah. The price, the price inside all this love is that it's really painful when you are not in the part of life where the act of love is just growing between you, where one person isn't, is holding that thread and the other person isn't alive is so excruciating. Did your, did your sisters have a similar way forward in terms of therapy? Was that like an ethos for your whole family? I'm asking because I think there are people in my family who do therapy. It's not like the tenant. My parents would not, if we were struggling as children, gone straight to like, let me get you some help with this. That was not, that was not their way. But I think, you know, as we all became older and therapy became, you know, a resource that people understood better. I mean, I I will never forget my first therapy session being terrified walking in and then experiencing it and being like, wait a minute, that's what this is. Like you get the ear of another respected adult who might have a different perspective. Like I'm going to do this all day long. I have lots of questions. But for your sisters in their process, was it similar to yours? Did you guys sort of share that or did everyone have to invent their own way forward? No, they never had therapy. One of my sisters, she was six years older. And then my other sister was 11 years older than me. They loved their parents dearly, very, very close. It just goes to show, doesn't it, how we all have different needs. Yeah. And how we all respond to different, yeah, to, to different ways of coping. And you know, my um, the younger my two sisters, she's very matter of fact about life. So, mm-hmm. you know, when we've had our grief chats, she just said, "Well, you know, you get to a point where you just get to a point of reluctant acceptance." Mm-hmm. Okay, and. So very matter of fact, very down to earth, very practical. And uh, listen, she's done her grieving. I mean, sure, she's really done her grieving. But, (laughs) you know, and I know that they often get tearful when they're reminded of things. They definitely revisit their trauma Mm. time to time. I think because I've also struggled with uh, depression and anxiety, I think my need for therapy has been there. Yeah. And, and my sort of, you know, obsession and desperation to learn coping mechanisms has been there for that reason. As I said, you know, everyone, everyone responds differently. Everyone deals with grief differently. I mean, I, I have clients who they don't feel anything. They just, they don't know what to feel. And you know, sometimes they can start grieving seven, eight, nine, ten years after their loss. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know. Yeah. We're two, we're two clinicians talking about therapy, but I always say on the podcast that that's just one way, you know, even as a trauma therapist, there are some things that we know that people have studied and they're efficacious and they have to do with body work and, you know, using your eyes and all these, you know, I, I love having all those tools, I am equally as curious and interested when people come in and say, 
I spent a year traveling and I felt like that was really grief work or I spent a year in service and I really felt like that was grief work or I spent a year playing the violin. And the interesting thing for me is because I have a strong academic background is that I can trace everything they're saying to, yeah, you're moving energy through your body with creativity. Sure. You're, you're leaving your energy across the, you know, country of Spain in your travels that, and I think, I think the part, you know, we talked about hope in the beginning of the, of our talk. I, I like the phrase. I have no idea where I stole this from. All my good phrases come from someone who I stole them from. It might be Dick Schwartz and IFS, but the idea of like being a hope merchant of saying to someone, I, I absolutely completely understand that you do not believe that you will be able to do this or that this is that you can live through it, or there will be any sense of integration or recovery or that life will ever be good. Totally get it. And in my experience, it usually does move through you, but we might have to get creative. So are there anything, you know, things that are instinctive for you, you know, and then I add that with the sort of brain science, there are some people who feel nothing for a year or two. And my belief is, yeah, that your brain is doing some things in there so that you don't have to feel what it doesn't want you to feel. And, you know, so I, I love being able to say to people, grief is not one thing. Therapy is one tool. And cause I love the, and I do think there are some people, I spend some time on, on grief and loss boards. And I do think that because of the lack of education out there, there are some people that are suffering with symptoms far longer than they need to, particularly PTSD symptoms of intrusive thoughts. My listeners know that I really just a million times a day and it still happens. I, in my head, I'm like, it is, I hear the phrase, it's your fault. She died because I was with my mom when she died and also images, you know, I spent a lot of time. It was intentional with her body after she died, but I'm very visual and I can close my eyes or not close my eyes and see those images and they can be brutal but I've had a lot of treatment on them, concrete treatments like EMDR and brain spotting and breath work that help move, just as you said, move the energy through the body. And I like to mention that and highlight when people use those tools, because I was a therapist for 10 years. and was like, I don't know what that EMDR thing is. You know, I was a therapist for a long time without a real understanding that there are not just therapeutic support, but actual treatments for some of the symptoms that are maybe more on the traumatic lens, but, you know, I have interviewed some people and I talked to some people and they say, Hey, when should I get treatment? And my attitude about it is, you know, it's sort of like, when should you put on a coat? Like try putting the coat on. And if you're more comfortable, stay in the coat. If you're too hot, take it off. If you go into a treatment and you're working with a therapist and you think it's a waste of money or a waste of time, or it is not helping you don't go back. But if you're sitting around asking everyone, do you think I should go? They can't answer that question for you. All your answers are inside yourself. Go try it and go try it and, and, you know, see if it is helpful. And I don't expect everybody to have to go to therapy to grieve. But I do think understanding that grieving is an action, that it's a verb, and that we'll do it for the rest of our lives in our own way. You described your sister's grief. I have a sibling who that that looks like their grief too. And nobody's here to say, well, that's not the right way to grieve. That 
everybody knows if they are doing their stuff in the way that makes sense to them. What I see a lot as well is comparing in grief. So, you know, for years, I used to watch friends and they lose their folks and their parents would be in their 80s or their 90s. And I used to think, God, they've been so lucky. You know, why are they grieving so intensely? I lost my parents at 25, right? And I realized, no, no, hang on a minute. Grief is grief, right? Relationships are relationships. Just because, you know, I went through this doesn't mean, you know, so that happens a lot as well that we, there's, there's a lot of comparing and grief and, and it's understandable, you know, sometimes people feel very guilty for not feeling the grief for not feeling the emotions that they should be, you know, inverted commas feeling. Yeah. And then that goes back to the nature of the relationship, you know, what was the nature of the relationship, but it's a very complex very complex subject. Everyone's on their own journey. I do see a lot of people who feel incredibly isolated with their grief, you know, lack of support, lack of validation, you know, their emotional needs not getting supported. And you've got enough on your plate having to deal with your loss, but to also deal with loneliness within grief, that's incredibly difficult. It's just people saying the wrong things, people not understanding. So you have to learn to be a warrior, really. You have to learn to just try and fight this yourself. And it's incredibly challenging. The loneliness and the isolation is something that I talk a lot about and I write a lot about because I think in my own experience with grief and loss, which was so intense when my mother died, I think about it a lot like early early recovery in addiction is it has to be by its nature, very self-centered. And I mean, self-centered, not selfish. I'm not trying to take something from you. I just can't look past my own plate sort of thing. My memory is very good. And, and at the time when my mom died and I was sort of coming out of trauma, I understood, I had this sort of like metacognition that the way that I felt about the world was not the way that it was, that I was so easily hurt by people not acknowledging that my world, you know, now spun on a wobbly axis or that they asked me to do something normal because they did not understand that nothing that I did could do was normal. And I had a lot of, I mean, probably still, some bumps in friendships and relationships, maybe some that needed to happen anyway. But I really felt injured by people's inability to, I actually don't think I needed any practical support, but it was the idea of not being able to validate my experience as ongoing. Mm -hmm. And that's quieted a little bit for me, but when I am doing grief work with people, I have such empathy for the truth of their emotional experience, which is that everybody doesn't want to talk to them and everybody is treating them this way. And what's interesting, because, you know, in trauma, there's a lot of anxiety and depression as parts that sort of come in to try to help with traumatic events. It is really common for traumatized people to want to make their footprint very small and to to sort of never leave their house and not venture out and not do things. And in trauma, we know 
that we want folks to continue to have personal relationships. You know, we titrate them out. We try to find the safest people, but we never say that's fine. You stay in your house for four months and you just call me when you're ready. But in grief, that is what people experience a lot. What they experience is they didn't call me for four months. And so there's this really fine balance between not accidentally perpetuating the isolation and the loneliness of sort of needing in that verb way to sort of, you know, push yourself to connect. I do a lot of talks to corporations and private companies, and I, I, I try not to say, don't say this, do say this in grief and loss, what I ask them to think about is, are you seeing someone that looks like they're isolating themselves? What's the story you're telling yourself about why they're doing that? What are the interventions that you believe you as a human individual that you can offer? Because most people feel very awkward and helpless when someone begins to isolate. And I think there are some things that technology has offered us like texting, which is extraordinary. You know, the texts that I got and I send to grievers can be so heartfelt, but not too much. You know, I don't have to go to the door with a casserole and say, I've been thinking about you left and right. I can just send a text every couple of days saying, I'm thinking of you, love to swing by and take you to coffee. I had one neighbor that literally every single day would text and say, what do you think about lunch today? That's amazing. Mm. It was amazing. It was. So, so that concept of loneliness and isolation, I think is a big one. And I think, I think there's some subtlety that is specific to grief and loss that is different to maybe depression and anxiety. That's worth peeling back for people because what happens is all that awkward. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And then all of a sudden this, no one's talked to the griever in four months and it's crazy. And there are other things that exacerbate that feeling of isolation, such as someone who's grieving doesn't want to appear to be a burden on their friends. Yeah. Uh, Someone who's grieving may be anxious about their friend saying the wrong thing to trigger them. So for instance, I've had clients that, they're very scared to open up. They're low to opening up because they're worried about what they're going to hear. Yeah. They're worried about someone saying something. Terrible, hurtful. Yeah. So I get that a lot. And also something that's quite frequent is feeling really uncomfortable in front of somebody and becoming emotional. Yeah. We are so, especially the British, we're so <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, the amount of the clients I've had where they'll start to become really tearful and just within a minute shut down because they, they, they can't allow themselves to go there. It's too embarrassing and uncomfortable for them. And apologize. They're paying me as a clinician in my office, the place with all the tissues, and they say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm crying. And it's, I mean, literally the space to cry, but those are such good points. One of the things that happens in this country, and I I say it a lot on the podcast, is that, you know, 
preteens go through these classes about puberty before they go through puberty so that they will not be totally horrified by what's happening. I mean, they may still be horrified, but at least they'll have the education that it's not abnormal. And my little soapbox and hope is that there will be some college level curriculum at a bare minimum. And I'm really grateful to the companies that are having me come in because these are people who really want to have a better understanding of just what is typical. There is so much that's typical, but being able to say to someone, listen, you are you the most vulnerable you have ever been because of your loss. You have no more sick days and you are going back to work. And so we need to work through when someone says to you, at least you were with her when she died. Oh my God. Everybody has their phrase. And I, I have this free writers workshop where it's, it's a whole series of prompts, but that's one that I, that I say, what's the thing that people say to you that drives you crazy. And mine was my, you know, that my parents were in heaven looking down on me because I don't get to believe in heaven and that makes other people feel better. But how are we going to take care of you in that moment? Are we going to run into the bathroom? Totally fine. Fake that you have a heart attack. Totally. Are we going to run away? Are we going to push against what are we going to do? Because it, it isn't an option for the rest of our lives to avoid all the minefields because they are unavoidable. So how do we build up that skill set? which I'm so sorry you have to do it, but you do. It's like physical therapy for an injury. What are we going to say? And the phrase that I use in my life is people will say things to me that are painful and I know they mean well. So it's this awful moment for everyone, which is like, you just made me feel terrible. You were trying to give me a loving gift. And it just, you know, it's like you, you spilled coffee on me while you were trying to get it for me. And so what I say to people is when I'm regulated, when I can, because it doesn't always work, I say, I know you mean that with love and that doesn't work for me. Do you have anything, do you have anything else you can offer? And if not, that's totally okay. Like it's totally okay. I know you meant that. I had people say though, you know, like, do you want to go and get a drink? And I'm like, I'm not much of a drinker and we've never had a drink before. Why in the world would we go have a drink? Because my dad died. You know, this is so awkward for everyone. But when you say, oh, I know you mean that with love. Thank you, but no. It's validating the person because the last thing we want is when someone who cares about us or maybe even just works with us makes an effort. The last thing we want is to be like, well, you're an asshole because they won't do it again. What we need is more connection, not less around grief and loss. So in my curriculum, I have sort of like, are you the griever? Or are you the supporter? And rather than saying, do this, don't do that. It's sort of, you know, well, what kind of a person are you? Are you a cook? Are you, you know, do you babysit? Are you an active interventionist? Are you a card kind of person? Because everything is good enough. It has to be good enough. And everything is painful because everything about grief is painful. I mean, it just is the truth. Is there something that you find when you, when you are working with your clients, that this is a thing that you sort of say to everybody, or that you believe is a general truism that either comes from your experience or just from your learning? Completely. I, I would say the majority of clients I've seen, the, the people surrounding them, you know, their loved ones, they're not there in the way they need to be there for them. And it's not intentional. I don't think people, you know, set out to hurt grievers. They don't, they don't, you know, it's, they don't, but 
look, it's always going to come back to the same thing, which is just a lack of a lack of uh, knowledge, a lack of understanding. And as you say, if it was taught in schools, then that would be a starting point, but it's not. And as I said, I've, I've had some one-liners. I mean, I can't remember what half of them are now, but, you know, in the end, I've always, I've always felt that sometimes you don't need to say anything, actually. Yeah. It's just your presence. Uh, your presence is what matters. And sometimes you've just got to take a bit of initiative. What's their favourite coffee? Or what do they like to eat? Or is the garden looking overgrown? Or are they out of food? Or can you help with some tasks or shopping? Anything. Sometimes it's just something as, as basic as that. Mm. But... Listen, it's not easy for people. People don't know what to say. They feel awkward. They feel uncomfortable. But that comes from a lack of understanding. So actually, you can do something about that. You, you can, you know, you, you can gain some knowledge about how to help people. Interesting, because I, I used to work in a high school and I used to teach the sex ed classes, those terrible. And that is the most awkward thing in the world for teenagers is for a grown up to sit and talk to them or ask them questions. And so the first class would be, listen, I'm not going to pretend this isn't wildly awkward for me because I'm a human being. And I know it's totally awful for you, but also for a lot of teenagers, sex is awkward. So if we can figure out right here in this class, how to make it just less awkward. Do you want to write your questions down on paper? Do you want to sit in small groups and come up with a question to ask me? I don't actually care. What I care about is this all get less awkward. And I use that analogy with people because, you know, most of the people that I am working with have figured out at some point in their life, how to get through the awkwardness of being a teenager into an adult who has a sex life. And so what I say is, listen, awkward. I mean, that's the talk that I give to most companies is, you know, grief is awkward. We do not need to be afraid of awkward. Awkward is a spot where we can grow. And yeah, it was awkward the first time, the second time, maybe the third time, but at some point I, I gain my own kind of confidence. And so when we're growing a griever, how do I grieve? We can also grow supporter, which is like, what do I do to support people? And if you're lucky enough to have had an experience where someone really showed up for you, whether it was with a death or a divorce, or, you know, you got fired, you already know what you think is helpful. So just start, just start with that. I mean, the example that I use in my own life is that, you know, it's not a fair comparison because this woman has been my best friend since I was 11, but when my mom died, she came and very oddly, I thought said to me, where's her medical chart? And I was like, oh, it's over, you know, it's over here. And then she just called every doctor that my mom had, every dentist, every, and told them that she died. Mm -hmm. So that horrible moment of getting letters and like, well, you missed your appointment. My family didn't have to live through that. And I have never forgotten it. And I have always Mm -hmm. said to people, I would be happy to come over and make some of those really awkward cancellation phone calls if that would be helpful. And just that offer sometimes brings people to tears. Sometimes they say no anyway, but just the notion, I mean, I'm really just trading off another person's insightful gift that -hmm. they gave to me, but I love the idea that we can, you know, be a thoughtful gift giver 
in that way, even though no one maybe trained us that we sort of had to learn it on the fly. Let me ask you one last question because I, I want to be respectful of your time. But when you when you lost your mom and dad, when your mom and dad died, did you have close friendships as well? Did your friendships take a hit? Did they bond together deeper the way your your you did with your sisters? I grew up a loner. I was quite a loner. Yeah. yeah. I always had sort of one best friend or a couple of best friends, but I think when I, I mean, when I got married, obviously we, yeah, we, you know, created the social circle together and, and friends were supportive, but again, such a sense of isolation because everyone's parents were alive. And I just yeah. didn't get it. Well, how come everyone's parents are alive? You know? Yeah. So, you know, I, I grew up with that and uh, that does make you feel you know, very, very lonely. Yeah, yeah. It really does. Yeah. But yeah, generally, you know, friend, friends were supportive. My experience has been that after a while, it's not mentioned anymore. You know, people seem to think that, you know, you have a loss and you move on, you get over it, and then <laughs> life resumes normality and until they've gone through it, you know. So I, I see that a lot. I really do. The amount of times people I'm seeing, you know, said to them things I said like, oh, come on, you know, this, this was three years ago. This was four years ago. And let's, let's move on and let's, let's do this, that and the other. And so even though everyone was kind of going about their, their normal lives, you know, <laughs> I'm still trying to <laughs> process yeah. what's happened. Yeah. But listen, you, you know, grief is not as simplistic as saying that there's this stage and that stage and the other stage, but there are different levels of intensity. You know, the first few years are obviously <laughs> um, were very intensive and it's not that the pain goes, but it's just that I changed my relationship to the pain. That's exactly right. Yeah. Cause you keep growing. I mean, that's the part that, that is just the truth. What fresh grief feels like is different than what grief feels like two years out. Or, you know, I don't wake up every morning now having forgotten that my mom died, but I did do that for a really long time, for a really long time, over a year, every night when I went to bed, I would say to my husband, I know she died. I just still can't believe she died. And I don't do that anymore. Those feelings are not, but I have new ones that are different that are based on my life moving forward and my mom and dad not being here to be a part of that. I have, you know, milestones in my kids' lives that I wouldn't have been able to anticipate even caring that they were a part of. And suddenly I wish I could call them. And so it is like this progression and there's different intensity. I sort of feel like, you know, with anything, if you can attune yourself to your friends and family and just ask them, you know, remember to ask. I think there are a lot of folks that are attuned to the idea that holidays are a big grief moment. They're, they're actually not for me because I didn't, I mostly spent my holidays in the UK with my husband's family, but being able to, to allow yourself to check in with what you know, and believe, you know, already about the people that you care about who've experienced loss. And then what you don't know, just ask, you know, is this a tough time of year? 
for your family. I just think questions are so loving. And I really do appreciate that some people don't want to talk about it. And my little sister once said to me, I had a miscarriage many, many years ago. And my little sister called and she was one of the few people that called. And she was like, well, I mean, the way I think about it is like, you feel the worst you could possibly feel already. I'm not going to make it worse by calling you, but I could make it better. I've always thought about that, that, you know, when you ask a question, a person is so entitled to say, oh, thank you. I don't want to talk about it. And that also, you know, for people who don't know that they're entitled, reminding them. Like, no, they asked you a question. You can say, thank you. No, I don't have to be a part of that. This has been a really lovely, lovely conversation. I am so grateful to know of your work and to know you and that you reached out to share the story because it's your personal story, but everything that you talk about just resonated so deeply with my own experience and also the experience that I've heard and held with so many of my clients. I hope we'll stay connected and... Good luck over there in the, in the UK. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. It has for me too. Good luck in your work. And thank you for being part of the community. I'm, I'm really grateful for it. Yeah. Take care, Megan. Thank you. Take care, David.